This morning, I'd like you to open in your Bible to Galatians, Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. And what I want us to look at uh, this morning has everything to do with the gospel message that we proclaim. As Josh mentioned, my family and I have spent the last few years living in Israel. We've lived um, working for this IBEX program, helping students follow Jesus uh, in his steps, literally and metaphorically. And one of the unique aspects about living in Israel is that Israel is has such a culture that is saturated with religion. Uh, religion really impacts a lot of what happens in Israel. And that's not to say that everybody is religious, not to say that everyone even believes in God. But living in Israel, for my family, we saw on a, on a daily and a weekly basis just how much religion was a part of the culture. Uh, every Friday night, for example, uh, the Sabbath would begin. We call it Shabbat in Israel. And so every Friday night, the whole country, essentially, at least the Jewish aspects of the country, would shut down. And you would have grocery stores shutting down and buses would stop running. The whole country would come to a close. And I can't tell you how many times I drove to a grocery store thinking, just forgetting that it was Shabbat and it was closed. And I'd have to remind myself week after week of that reality. And then you'd have the festivals and the holidays and you'd have a festival like the Feast of Unleavened Bread and you'd go to the store to get leavened bread, but it had all been raptured because there's no leavened bread during that week. It's just matzah, the, the crackers, they don't suffice. Um, so we would consistently engage with a people who were saturated with religiosity as it were. And one common denominator that we saw on a regular basis was that people were trying to um, make their, themselves right before God uh, in, their own, in their own ways, by their works, maybe just by nature of who they were. And we time and time again saw people trying to be right before God in their own way, in their own um, works. And that's why this morning I wanted to turn to Galatians 2 and specifically I want to look at verse 21. It's just one verse that we'll look at this morning and I want us to think about uh, the gospel. I want us thinking about the gospel that we proclaim not just with our lips but also with our lives. Uh, this isn't necessarily a conventional missions text, it's Missions Sunday, but it is one that I think will help us as we think about missions, locally and globally. And my question for you this morning is, uh, in your heart, in your home, occupations, and in your outreach, what is the gospel message that you proclaim with your lips and with your lives? And I want to help us think through that this morning by looking at two ways that Paul teaches us about gospel proclamation in Galatians chapter 2. So let's read Galatians 2, 19 through 21. But again, we're going to really just focus in on that last verse. So beginning with Galatians 2, 19, Paul says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's go to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your precious and sweet word. I thank you that it instructs us and equips us and helps us to walk before you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word and ultimately in your son. I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for the work that you're doing through the congregation here locally, but also in all the world. And I pray that we, Father, this morning would be encouraged, even challenged to think about What is the gospel message that we believe and proclaim with our lips and with our lives? Again, thank you for these precious people. By your spirit, would you encourage them through the preaching of your word in Jesus' name, amen. So if you're taking notes, like I said, I wanna show you two ways that Paul teaches us about gospel proclamation in Galatians 2. And the first way he teaches us about gospel proclamation is just by giving us an honest claim in verse 21. A few, a short sentence, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. I do not nullify the grace of God. Now we'll dive into that, but I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. So let's zoom out and consider what's going on in Galatians and how might that help us understand verse 21. Galatians is all about Paul defending the faith. He wants his audience to understand what the true gospel is. He wants his audience to understand that a person is only declared righteous before God by faith. It's only by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ that a person can be declared righteous. Opposed to uh, by working yourself into a right standing with God. And so Paul in Galatians writes against this. He defends this truth that it is only by faith. And he has to defend the truth because the false teachers around and in these churches have tempted them to a false way of thinking about the gospel. These false teachers have come in and they have taught this idea that you do need to do certain things to be right before God. You do need to be circumcised and and observe the, the festivals and the feasts and the Sabbath days, all these things, in order to be right before God. And Paul sees, sees this as a great danger. It would be like if you were wandering in the desert and you're wandering for days and days, you're super thirsty and someone approaches you with a water bottle uh, laced with arsenic, a lethal amount of arsenic, and they offer you the water bottle. You might think this is wonderful. This is good news. I'm not gonna die. And then you drink the water bottle. It's not good news, right? This is what the false teachers were doing. They were providing the Galatians with another gospel, but a dangerous gospel. And so Paul was defending what the true gospel is because he, he had a fear. He had a concern for the church that they, they were going to drink that water. They were going to die or they were going to suffer because they weren't following after the true gospel. In Galatians 4, 11, he says, 
I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul is deeply concerned for this church because he sees that they've been tempted to this false idea that you could save yourself, that you could be good enough by keeping the law. And so then Paul lays out the facts. He preaches the gospel and he explains that the gospel he's given to them is the divine gospel. It's not the off-brand, dangerous version. It's the God-given gospel. And he defends that, that gospel by giving his personal testimony as well as his apostolic testimony that he is showing them, look, this is the true gospel because this is what God has done in my life. Don't you see? I'm not preaching a different gospel. This is the gospel of the apostles. This is the gospel that you heard. And it's in this historic account of his own life that in chapter two, verse 11, he then relays to us this account of what happened to the apostle Peter, where the apostle Peter actually was one of these people who uh, failed in regard to holding firm to the gospel with his life. He says in 2.11 that Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, which in the old covenant, Jews didn't do that. They didn't eat with the Gentiles. They kept a safe distance. And Paul recognized that Peter used to eat with them, but then when these false teachers arrived on the scene, Peter separated himself he didn't want to be seen associating with them. Paul calls, calls this hypocrisy. He was being a hypocrite. And in verse 14 of chapter two, Paul says, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. His conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter had retreated into the clutches of legalism, not necessarily by what he believed. He didn't, at least in this account, we don't see him saying that I no longer believe in salvation by grace alone through faith alone. You see, Peter retreated into the clutches of legalism by not what he taught with his lips, but with what he implied and preached with his life. His life preached a message. It preached that in order to be right with God, I must keep the law again. I must separate myself from those Gentiles. And that led Paul into a clear and severe proclamation of what the gospel is. Because again, Paul is recognizing the danger of the arsenic in the water. He's recognizing this is no trivial issue. This isn't a family drama where you just don't want to sit next to someone. Uh, this is life and death. Peter, your actions were proclaiming a message contrary to the gospel. That should be sobering for all of us, right? Myself included. So this leads again to Paul's strong defense of how to be right with God. And he explains in verses 15 through 21 of chapter two that it's only through our faith in and union to Jesus Christ, the son of God who loved us and gave himself for us that we can be right before God. And so that's the, the zoomed out context that all leads us to verse 21 where he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Do you see the severity of his point? He's punctuating his argument with verse 21. He's helping the church to see the severity of the error that Peter fell into. And for the Galatians, this was all so that they would 
uh, he, Paul would be able to transition into helping them to see the danger that they were in. Just like an apostle fell into this. Galatians, you can't fall into this as well. So now let's zoom into verse 21. Paul makes this honest claim. I do not nullify the grace of God. What does that mean? We don't probably use the word nullify. Uh, I doubt many of you have used the word nullify this morning or this week. I do not nullify the grace of God. What does that mean? Maybe your translation says set aside or reject or make void or treat as meaningless. Paul is saying, I do not reject the grace of God. I don't do this. The same Greek word that is used here is also used in Mark 7 verse 9 where Jesus says to the Pharisees, you have a fine way of rejecting, that's our word, rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And that's, that's the idea there of rejection. It's suggesting I don't need that. The Pharisees by their traditions were expressing, I don't need God's commandments. I can make myself righteous on my own. And what is it that Paul does not nullify in verse 21? He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. What is God's grace? It's his, his undeserved kindness in salvation that he gives to people because of what Jesus has done. A simpler definition would be that it's his undeserved favor that he would bestow on us. Paul says, I don't, I don't reject this. I do not nullify or set aside the grace of God. And the simple question for us this morning that I want us to ponder is, with our lips and with our lives, do we suggest that we do not need the grace of God? Do we suggest that it is proper to set aside the grace of God? And perhaps you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, you know, Zach, we, we believe in the grace of God. We all believe that, right? We'd all affirm that it's through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. We might affirm that with our lips. But the context of what Paul is talking about here is not just what is the doctrinal statement that you sign. He's calling Peter out for not just what he said or believed, but how he lived. Remember verse 14 of chapter 2. Peter did not live, was not living in step with the truth of the gospel. His actions contradicted suggested that he did not need the grace of God. And that's why Paul says this. And I think there's good reason for us to ask ourselves, do we set aside the grace of God in our lives? In any way, do we suggest, I don't really need God's grace? Perhaps two questions to ask to help us think about that is, first, well, how do we relate to God? Are we a, a thankless people? W what is our worship look like on a daily basis. Adam preached last week of the, of the lepers and the, ones who, the one who returned to Jesus. And the leper that returned to Jesus did not say, Jesus, thank you for doing your part in saving me, you know, healing me. I did my part, you did your part, we worked together on this. No, the leper recognized this is, thank you, it, it, all the credit is to you. 
How do we relate to God in our thankfulness? But using or keeping Peter in mind, another question asked is, how do we relate to our fellow man? How do we relate first to believers? Do we treat other believers as second-class citizens because they're different from us in some way? As Peter separated from the Gentiles, he classified them in some other category. They weren't as righteous as he was, perhaps. That's, that's in a sense, rejecting the truth of the gospel, isn't it? Isn't it saying that the gospel does not level all of us in our depravity and that God's grace levels all of us in our pride, that no one's intrinsically better than another? Perhaps we think to ourselves, I have more convictions or I had more experience, more theology, more knowledge, whatever. Therefore, I can look down on these other believers. That would be to set aside the grace of God, to suggest we don't need it. And it's Mission Sunday, so we also need to think about how do, we, how do we treat unbelievers? Do we treat them as though they are just so uninformed or why are they so stubborn and why aren't they getting saved? Opposed to recognizing that, you know, I'm not saved for anything intrinsic in me. God didn't save me because I have more spiritual muscles or accolades to, to gloat about. It's not by works. It's all, it's all God's grace. It's all of grace. That's why Paul can be so firm on this idea. To uphold the grace of God, we recognize that, especially as believers, whatever we have, we only have it because we've received it. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul asked this question, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast? This is the mindset we need to have to uphold the grace of God, to confirm it, to say amen to it, opposed to setting it aside. And so PBC, in, instead of living thankless lives and treating others with contempt and suggesting we do not need grace, may PBC make this same honest claim. Locally, here in, in this congregation now, but also globally. May we proclaim the gospel not just with our lips, but also with our lives, upholding the grace of God, saying yes and amen to the grace of God, and agreeing with Paul and saying, we do not nullify the grace of God. So the first way that Paul teaches us about uh, gospel proclamation is by giving us this honest claim. I do not nullify the grace of God. That is not what I'm about as an apostle. That's not what we do as believers. But then second, he gives us a hypothetical consequence, a hypothetical consequence of rejecting the grace of God. He says in 2.21, the second half of the verse, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. When I was in junior high, I was a skateboarder. I still am a skateboarder a little bit. And um, when I started skating, I learned that I did not skate the proper way. When you skate, you guys tracking with me? Probably the first skateboarding illustration up here, okay? When you skate, if you're facing this way, you gotta, you gotta push with your left foot. And if you're facing this way, you've gotta push with your right foot. And I did the opposite. And... Eventually, my friends pulled me aside in grace and love and 
skating church discipline and said, Zach, if you keep pushing Mongo, it's called pushing Mongo. It's not a good thing. If you keep doing this, not only will you be made fun of, but you won't skate properly. This, it, it will be bad for you. You will fall and it will just be embarrassing for all of us. There's the if then, right? And Paul wants the church to recognize the if then of something far more serious, far more important than skateboarding. And that is that if, if it truly is true that we can be justified by the law, then Christ died for no purpose, for no purpose. If through the law, I can be made righteous, if I can climb the ladder of good deeds, if I can get enough jewels in my crown, avoid enough sin, do enough good, go to church enough, help enough widows and orphans, and if doing all those things could make me righteous before God, then why did Jesus die? Paul says, if that's true, then he died for no purpose. Do you see how high the stakes are? This is a logical bowling ball that Paul wants to weigh in the hearts and minds of his audience. This is no trivial thing. This is not just doctrinal issues. This is incredibly important. Paul wants the church to come face to face with the ugly logical conclusion of legalism. If all of this, if, if we can be made just by good works, then Christ's death was a waste of time, energy, resources, and life. That's the severity of the issue. And you might say, well, is it really a waste? Could it, could it be just less valuable, like a stock fluctuating in value? And that's not the option that Paul gives us. It's, it's all or nothing. It's either fully purposeful and meaningful and valuable and that, that means that it's all by faith and not by our works, or it's by works. And if our salvation is by works, then Christ died for no purpose. Or some translations say he died needlessly. If even 1% of my salvation is of my works, then 100% of Christ's work is of no worth. That is what is on the line in the gospel. That is what is on the line for the Galatian church as they are being told to wake up to the truth of the gospel, to be reminded of it and to live it out. There's a weight to this. And we can all in many different ways fall into to legalistic ways of thinking. We are all in a sense recovering Pharisees. All believers are recovering Pharisees. Because the propensity of our hearts is to uproot the cross and plant law in its stead. To suggest that Bible reading and praying and evangelism, even good things, are enough to make me righteous is to suggest that we ought to just replace the cross of Christ. And that's why this is so heavy and so important. When we lived in Israel, we would often go to Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, you have the new city, and then you also have the old city. And when you arrive into the old city, you can almost immediately see the divisions within the city. You can smell the incense burning. You can hear the calls to prayer. You can taste the kosher food with no pork or bacon. You can feel the notes in the Western Wall. 
Everything about the religiosity of mankind is just saturated in that city. And it reminds me that all religions say or suggest that they do not need the cross of Jesus Christ alone to be right before God or to be at peace with him. And as we think about missions, and as we think about the message we're proclaiming in the world, in a sense, it starts here. It starts with us asking ourselves the question, what gospel are we proclaiming? Again, not just with our doctrine, but in the way we live, in the way we respond to the gospel, in the way we treat God and treat our fellow man. I'll ask the same question that I asked at the beginning of the message. That is, in our hearts, in our homes, and occupations and outreach, what is the gospel message we proclaim with our lips and with our lives? Perhaps we might think of how to respond to this. What do, we, what do we do with this? And I think maybe our knee-jerk reaction is to say, well, I just need to be better. Okay, I'll, I'll do this more, Zach. I'll, I'll focus on not nullifying the grace of God. I'll remember how significant the gospel is. Otherwise, Christ died for no purpose. And I just want to remind you that when we respond, we can't think to ourselves, I just need to be better. I just need to flex my spiritual muscles. You know, you don't plug an extension cord into itself and expect to get power, right? You don't get hydrated from consuming your own saliva, right? Some of you just woke up. You're like, what is he talking about? You can't rely on yourself to respond to this. The response would be to station yourself before the cross, the, the, the full cross, the purposeful and meaningful cross, Station yourself there before a cross that is fully capable to bear your sin. And in faith, enjoy the righteous robes of Jesus Christ that the Father gives to all who believe. Enjoy Christ's righteousness charged to your account by faith and uphold the grace of God. Do not reject it to a watching world. Uphold it. Cherish it. Here as individuals in the church and in the community, and there in the states and countries and continents around the globe, let us uphold the grace of God with our lips and with our lives. Now let's go to the throne of grace together. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this short text and message. I thank you that we have this example of holding firm and fast to the gospel. And I pray that we, as we think about the gospel message that we personally are proclaiming to a watching world and that our missionaries are proclaiming, God, I pray that you would enable us to, to proclaim a gospel in all its purity, a gospel that levels us of our pride, a gospel that exalts Christ. Keep us from in any way thinking that to be right before you, we must obey the law or do all these things. Remind us that only Christ, only Christ is our righteous one. It is only his righteousness that can enable us to stand before you with joy forever and ever. Amen.